You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what is top of mind for the C-suite and other key security leaders. I'm Ann Johnson, and today I'm joined by Tom Burt, Microsoft's Corporate Vice President of Customer Security and Trust. Tom leads a cross-disciplinary team of engineers, lawyers, policy advocates, project managers, business professionals, data analysts, and crime investigators responsible for advancing the trust customers have in the security of our products and services. Tom's team is formulating and advocating for cybersecurity policy around the world, advancing digital peace, the Cybertech Accord, and the Defending Democracy Project. Tom has an engineering team focused on compliance with regard to Microsoft security policies and a team responding to law enforcement requests for access whilst also protecting customer privacy. It is projected that people will create more than 175 zettabytes of data by 2025. While this abundance of data fuels machine learning, artificial intelligence, and automation, this abundance also presents risks to our security, our economies, and our fundamental right to privacy, as data becomes one of the greatest assets to help address global challenges. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, Tom. Thanks for having me, Anne. So, Tom, I know, because I've worked with you, that you're a really busy person. Nation-state attacks represent some of the most advanced and persistent threat activity Microsoft tracks, and nation-state activity groups are focused, they have the means to develop and deploy novel techniques and tactics, and they're constantly working to improve their capabilities. So when we look at the recent rapid increase of cyber attacks, we couple this with the extraordinary amount of data we're projecting, and we think about governments and their data being the highest value targets for these hackers today, not to mention there's a changing global regulatory environment. A lot of stuff going on, Tom. So what do you see are some of the bedrock solutions for both the private and the public sector in addressing all of these challenges? Boy, there's a lot to talk about there, Anne, but let me start with what I think is the most critical, which is the necessity to take basic hygiene steps that we all need to take across the digital ecosystem in order to protect our own environments and thereby protect the ecosystem more generally. And that starts with moving to the cloud. The one thing that we've seen from the most recent major cyber attacks is that they began and sometimes they stayed entirely in the on-premises environment. The fact of the matter is that at Microsoft and really across all the cloud services companies, we can provide much greater security in the cloud than any company can possibly do on-premises. Not only because we can keep the very latest um, software and technology operating for our customers in the cloud with everything patched and up to date, but also within the cloud, we can do our most advanced innovation for how to protect our customers using AI and machine learning techniques and other um, approaches to even be able to predict when an attack is being launched and is underway and takes steps to protect customers. So there's a great deal we can do to help customers stay secure, but much more so in the cloud. And then on premises, we need to have basic cybersecurity hygiene. 
And that starts with helping our customers apply all the updates as they're released so they can have the most secure technology and operation in their environment. But we also need to have multi-factor authentication on all critical accounts. We need to have our customers move to zero trust environment um, and to have such things as least privileged access so that it's much harder for an attacker to be successful even if they get into your environment. And these are basic cybersecurity hygiene techniques that have been out there for some time. But I think these recent attacks and the continued escalation of the attacks and their impact are going to help us convince customers that they really need to take these steps. Yeah, Tom, and you know, before we start talking about anything else, I, I think you're right in saying that we know, we've said for years the cloud is a security imperative, that we can keep customers more secure in cloud environments, not just because we see trillions of threats globally and you know they're very diverse, right? But because we can aggregate all that data and we can give it to customers in real time and we can build both detections and protections for them with that. But that doesn't mitigate the need for customers also to use a lot of security hygiene on premises because it's the basic things like a phishing attack that will actually allow you know customers to be breached ultimately. That's right. That's absolutely right. And even if the customers move to the cloud with most of their workloads, they still have to protect their endpoints and whatever compute they're doing on premises remains vulnerable. And to prevent the most common things, and we saw this when we published our Microsoft Digital Defense Report last fall, and we're seeing it as we prepare for the new edition to come out um, in the next few months, it still remains the case that for cyber criminals and nation state actors, the primary means by which they gain access to your network is through either phishing or password spray. Just these basic you know, approaches that they've used for many, many years remain the most productive ways for bad guys to get in. And those can be so easily prevented or at least significantly reduced by deploying these basic cyber hygiene techniques. So moving past cyber hygiene and even the cloud for a second, Let's talk about the recent executive order from the Biden administration. One of the things it calls for is removing barriers to shared threat information between government and private sector, also modernizing and implementing stronger cyber standards, establishing a cyber safety review board, and a list of other items. You know, when you think about our own relationship with governments globally, also the Microsoft Digital Defense Report that we produced, the APAC Security Council, things you're doing with the Cyber Tech Accord and defending democracy. How does all that weave together? And what are you, you know, I was talking to um, Mike Rogers uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and talking about, you know, the barriers to threat sharing, right? And the fact that private sector is often concerned that if they share something with, with the government, it's going to leak and it's going to appear they were breached. We talked about the Cyber Safety Review Board being like a national transportation safety board. Can you give me your thoughts on all of those things? Because it's a lot of levers. People want one single solution and it's not. But can you talk about how all those things work together? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, the, let me start with just the, the executive order for improvement of cybersecurity. That was such a significant step forward by the federal government and by this administration to really elevate the cybersecurity of federal government agencies. But the White House used that executive order as an opportunity to take the the reach of federal government contracting and expanding some of those requirements beyond just the federal government and to 
all federal government contractors, which will have a significant impact on the cybersecurity of the ecosystem in the U.S. more generally. And so we were strong supporters of that executive order. The government did a great job seeking input from the private sector before they finalized the executive order. And there are now a number of processes in place that are moving really quickly to get private sector input on some of the implementation issues around that executive order. And they go to some of the things you talked about, Anne, like sharing of threat intelligence and reporting of incidents. And it's really important to distinguish those two things because they're both important, but they're quite different in terms of their relevance to providing cybersecurity and the care that we need to take in establishing a regulatory regime. So when you talk about reporting incidents, that's one of the things that remains a a real challenge for the cybersecurity community. We see at Microsoft, as you mentioned, we get the 8 trillion signals a day that come into our network, but we only see that data relevant to our customers and especially our cloud customers. We don't see other competitors' customers' information and they don't see ours. And even though we can see a great deal of information about our cloud customers, we can't see very much at all about what's happening with our customers on premises. And the solar winds attacks last year were a really great example of this, where those attacks remained undetected for many, many months. But then once they were detected, we were able to detect and notify 60 of our customers that they had likely been compromised only because they were our cloud customers and we could see that actor as they were moving between the on-premises environment and into um, our cloud services, we could see what they were doing and we saw traces and fingerprints of activity that was anomalous and that gave us the ability to say to those customers, "Uh uh-oh, we think you're compromised, we think this bad guy is in your network, you better go find out. And we were able to notify those customers That was about 60. Federal government through law enforcement and other um, means ultimately said they thought there was a little over 100 total victims. But we actually don't know how many victims there really were of the solar winds attack. And there may be some companies that still have this actor present in their networks and they don't know it um, because this was all on premises. And we also don't know everything that we could know about that attack because there's no requirement other than unless it becomes a securities material event, there's no requirement for people to report a cyber attack or a cyber incident. That data and that information would help everybody do a better job protecting customers, both in responding to an incident, but also in developing better defenses against future attacks. And so one of the things the executive order does is it compels all federal government contractors to report incidents to CISA so that that information can be consolidated and then used to try to defend better against these attacks. And that's a very positive development. Let's stop there for one second, Tom, um, because there is a lot to pull apart here. How do you think the federal government can create confidence in the private sector that if they report that information that it's not going to be leaked or it's not going to cause them any type of you know material issue? The executive order says that that should be done, but that's one of the things that's being left to further rulemaking and further consideration by relevant agencies as to exactly what's going to happen with that data and how it will be protected 
and who, if anyone, will be given access to that data and in what ways. So there is concern about that. But the good news is, is everybody has to report then the stigma of reporting becomes much less. And that's one of the big challenges we have today is people don't want to report because they're concerned about the stigma or the possible commercial impact of saying, oh, yes, I got attacked. But if you have one of these big events and everybody's reporting and that's happening all the time, then that reduces that potential stigma. But more importantly, as you point out, and it's going to be up to government to prove um, that they can maintain the security of that information and that data. And by the way, a great way for them to do that is to have all of that in the cloud. Yeah, and I completely agree. Now, you were you were moving um, further when I stopped you. I'm, I'm interested in this cyber, you know, review board and, and the analogy to the National uh, Transportation Safety Board, and if you think that's even the right analogy for it. You know, a lot of people have talked about that analogy, and it's an interesting one. Uh, I think that it has potential to to help us understand aspects of the attacks that we don't see until all that data comes in. Uh, one of the challenges I think that that group's going to face is it's going to be very important that federal government agencies also share that attack information with that board. And figuring out how to do that and to disentangle the challenge that government has with that information currently often being classified so that it can be shared and combined with the private sector information and conclusions drawn that can then be shared broadly with the cybersecurity community is going to be a challenge. And it's going to require a bit of a cultural shift by government, especially with regard to cyber threat and cyber attack information, which tends to be classified and it's gonna to have to be declassified much more often in order to really make that board effective. Okay, that's really good perspective. So. Moving from the executive order, which really came out of what we're going to talk about next, which is, you know, Nobelium, right? Um, a lot of folks called that event cyber espionage and some argument that governments have engaged in espionage against one another for millennia, and they'll continue to do so. Um, but now in the Internet age, I would love for you to share why potentially we shouldn't consider the recent cyber taxes espionage as usual. You know, Nobelium is a great example because there have been two important attacks. So there was the SolarWinds attack, which, you know, Microsoft and our uh, mystic team, the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center, attributed to a group we identify as Nobelium that operates from Russia. And we're very confident in that attribution. And in my view, the SolarWinds attack was not espionage as usual, as that term has been coined and being used. But then there was a more recent attack that we also wrote about and the Mystic team published a couple technical blogs about, also that we attributed to Nobelium. And that was a series of phishing attacks. But the number of victims that they were targeting with those phishing attacks was in the several hundreds, and they all were the kinds of entities that you would expect to see a nation state attacker going after as part of their espionage efforts. What was unique about those um, attacks was we caught them early before they had much opportunity to be successful and were able to publish information to help people protect themselves. But we published information about it, both to let the community know that this group, Nobelium, remained active, 
but also because the technical information that Mystic was able to see and, and write about was incredibly useful because it showed some really creative things that Nobelium was doing with the behind the scenes engineering in how they were managing that attack. And that's important to share because Nobelium, as was evident from SolarWinds, is really good with their operational security, how they get in, how they remain persistent and undiscovered in a network um, is very important to that group. And so it's very important to share what we saw as a, uh, engineering experiments they were performing behind the scenes of those phishing attacks. But at the end of the day, those attacks did seem to be purely espionage attacks. They were targeted. They were going after the kinds of targets that would be typical of espionage, and there didn't seem to be any other effort to try to disrupt the business or activities of the organizations that were being targeted. Now let's compare that to SolarWinds. SolarWinds was different in two really important ways that to me mean that it's not espionage as usual. First, it was indiscriminate. And we saw that same thing with the Hafnium attack this year on the exchange servers. They were indiscriminate in that they targeted thousands and thousands of devices and networks, even though ultimately the victims they were really interested in exfiltrating data from was a very small number. And that caused a great deal of harm. It, it imposed business harm, business disruption, expense on thousands of entities that had to investigate, determine whether this actor was in their environment, get them out of their environment, in some cases disrupt the operation of their business while they did that work, even though the attacker was really only interested in a very small number of those victims, they imposed that harm very broadly. More than 18,000 victims in the case of SolarWinds. So that was one thing that makes it different than espionage as usual, is the indiscriminate nature of the attack and the harm that it imposed. The other thing that was really important with SolarWinds and the work that Nobelium did there was that they compromised the update process for SolarWinds, the SolarWinds Orion product, which was a popular network management product. SolarWinds, like almost every vendor in this industry, uses online updates to update their customers, keep them secure and give them new features. That is a pathway that is absolutely critical that it remain trusted, especially to keeping the security of our environment in a constant state of improvement. We have to have our customers able to trust the update process. And we saw the attackers way back in the NotPetya attack in 2017 in the Ukraine use the update process for Ukrainian accounting software as the means by which the vector that they used to get the destructive um, package that they distributed in that case um, distributed in the Ukraine. And it ultimately spread outside the Ukraine to multinationals who were using that package in their operations within the Ukraine, shut down global shipping, um, for example, with Merck, which caused hundreds of millions of dollars of damage to Merck in that particular attack. But the key to that was the vector they used was the update process. And we've seen those same actors attempting to use that process in other instances since that time. And now we have SolarWinds, a very sophisticated use of that process, the way that they were able to get in, the way they were able to put their malware into the update package without being detected, really 
sophisticated work by the attacker to corrupt that process. And that's a process that has to be trusted. And so we should have rules governing nation state behavior in cyberspace that says, no, that process is off limits. Yes, you're going to do espionage. Yes, we know you're going to do espionage, but do it in a targeted, not an indiscriminate way and do it without corrupting the update process because we have to have customers trust that process for every vendor everywhere around the world in order yeah. to keep customers safe. I, I think everything you just said is is really relevant to why it's not you know espionage as usual yes it was somewhat targeted but it was a bit indiscriminate and to your point we, we there just have to be rules of engagement right i was reading um this morning someone had written a really interesting blog you know related to policy about how we understand the collateral damage from physical warfare because we've been doing it for you know centuries we need to actually understand better the collateral damage from cyber warfare and we need to think about that as we're, you know, as nation states are thinking about, you know, this new evolution of cyber espionage or cyber war. And it goes far beyond the immediate impact that I was talking about with, you know, uh, businesses or even individuals whose use of their technology gets disrupted or have to, you know, incur a cost and expense to repair their systems after they've been corrupted by an actor. But the, the collateral damage goes beyond that and especially goes to this concept of this concern about the trust that enterprises, organizations, and individuals have to be able to have in their technology and in the products and services that they're using. So, Tom, you wrote a blog following research we supported from Professor Jacob Shapiro at Princeton, and it cataloged 96 separate foreign influence campaigns that targeted 30 countries between 2013 and 19. And these campaigns sought to defame notable people, persuade the public, or polarize debates. Some 93% of these campaigns included the creation of original content, 86% amplified pre-existing content, and 74% distorted objectively verifiable facts. So can you share for the audience a bit more about this report? I know it's a bit of a departure from core cybersecurity, but I think Microsoft's efforts are really interesting in how we're combating disinformation and how we're helping to educate the public. Yeah, I mean, the report itself, and, and you summarized its key findings, the report was illuminating because it was a thorough exploration of specific campaigns that the researchers were able to identify where they could see nation states seeking to disrupt and, and misinform people in countries around the world to try to influence how people are thinking about policies, issues, and people of importance in their societies. And this is clearly one of the big challenges that we face as a, a cyber community, I think, over the next decades, because this is going to be a super challenging problem to address. Um, there are so many issues here, and as, as I'm sure you know, and, and the listeners know, that, that range from everything like, how do you even define what is misinformation or disinformation in the first place? Um, who gets to decide what is accurate and what is not accurate? And to what extent do you tolerate different viewpoints, including viewpoints that may not be as strongly grounded in facts, but still are part of discourse that you enable and, and even encourage as part of the process of having social discourse to try to find solutions to problems or to resolve issues or to just communicate with one another. And so these are all big challenges. But one of the things that we're finding from the research that Shapiro did and other research that's going on now 
is how the business structure of the technology industry reinforces some of these challenges by having algorithms that look to see what you're interested in and then providing you with the same information that you have showed an interest in it has a tendency to reinforce possibly counterfactual views of the world and there's many other challenges in the business models used by technology companies that help reinforce the opportunity, whether it's nation states or other actors, to sow disinformation and discord in a way that we haven't seen before in society. And at the same time, we've seen these business models erode the business model that supports journalism. And where in the past, I think many, many people looked to their local sorts of journalism, their, their local paper or their local newscasters or major news broadcasters as the source of truth of information that they could consume. Increasingly, as that business model has been eroded, um, we found that people just don't have that, that single source of truthful information that they can go to and rely on. And instead, they're, they're confronted with this cacophony of information and with business models that tend to reinforce their initial impression. And so they don't get the opportunity to really challenge even their own thoughts and beliefs. All of these are, are big problems. They can be addressed, perhaps, with regulation of business models and approaches. They can be addressed by increasing education and information. One of the things we've done at Microsoft is we recently entered into a long-term contract with a company called NewsGuard that we've been supporting and working with for a number of years. But this was a company that was started by journalists, but both from uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal. So you could say on two different sides of the of the journalistic spectrum, but these respected journalists have created a company that uses journalists around the world to assess the integrity, the information integrity of websites that purport to be communicating news. And they provide easily consumable um, ratings for those websites, but also you can deep dive and really understand the basis for those ratings. So that if you care, if you care about whether the information is that you're consuming is legitimate or not, they provide a great tool that we're going to be building to more of our services and products at Microsoft, but they provide a really great tool to just inform yourself as to whether that website operates in a way that's legitimate or in a way that suggests that they purvey in disinformation and misinformation. And so we can use technology to provide better and more useful information to consumers. We can think about how the business models that are being deployed advance the cause of disinformation and try to correct that. And we can also work, and one of the things that we've been working on a lot is how to deal with the problem of deep fakes, um, use of technology to create misleading video or audio information that's just not true, but appears to be valid. And we're working with a great consortium of the BBC, New York Times, and other technology companies on a thing called Project Origin, which is the idea of being able to establish the authenticity of an audio or video file at the time it's created, and then tracking that authenticity through the entire time that that audio or video file exists so that legitimate editing can be done and tracked, but illegitimate changes to it are also flagged. And so the consumer can know when they see a video, you know, that gets displayed to them with either, hey, this is authentic or this has been altered and is not authentic.
And that is another yeah. technique that can be used, but that's going to take many years and a, and a broad consortium of organizations to agree on some standards before we'll really have that in place. No, that makes sense. And it's really an interesting topic, and I wanted to make sure we covered it today, even though it's a little bit tangential. But thank you, Tom. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you joining Afternoon Cyber Tea and enlightening us across a wide variety of topics, including nation-state attacks, the executive order, and you know disinformation and how we're trying to protect that with some of our partnerships. Thanks so much. Thank you, Anne. It's really been great to have the opportunity to talk with you. And I want to thank our audience for joining us on Afternoon Cyber Tea and look forward to having you join us on the next episode. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia, be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.